0: Well, have you ever tried to come up with a good excuse for not getting your homework done? Uh, Study Breaks Magazine, uh, a college-written magazine online, has collected some excuses they have found from over around the interwebs. Uh, Who knows if these are actually things that have happened in real life, but they're funny regardless, so here are some good ones I liked. My dad needs a paper shredder for work, and it was delivered to our house yesterday. He wanted to show us how it works and mistakenly took my homework and destroyed it. Or how about this one? I didn't do my homework because I figured I'd do it tomorrow because I'll be older and therefore be wiser then. Or uh, two more that kind of go in, in hand in hand. First, to be honest, I didn't do my homework because I know how heavy your current workload is and I didn't want to add to it. I thought I could give you some more free time. Uh, and then kind of in keeping with that, another one was, I, I couldn't do my homework because I was at the rally all day yesterday. You know, the rally to increase teacher pay? I was, I was there all day. <laughs> I, pretty great excuses. Pretty, uh, pretty great excuses if you ask me. But good excuses? Maybe not. Well, church, we see some excuses in our passage this morning in the Gospel of Luke Luke, if you remember, was a physician in the first century who pursued reliable sources and faithful testimony in order to write an accurate account of Jesus' life and ministry. He did this so we might have certainty regarding the things we've been taught. And today we see a few wannabe disciples give Jesus some seemingly legitimate excuses for why they're going to follow him, but not yet. Yet. And we'll see Jesus' response. So, if you haven't already, get your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to be reading the uh, last section of chapter 9, starting in verse 51. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans, to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Harsh, not harsh, hard words from Jesus this morning. So what should we see in these two kind of sections of our text? Well, I'm going to have three R's for you uh, for today. First, resolve. Second, rejection. And third, requirement. Resolve, rejection, requirement. First, resolve. So, for a few weeks now, in Luke chapter 9, we've been mentioning uh, how Luke 9 is a sort of pivot point in the gospel of Luke. And here in verse 51, we see The pivot happen. We see the hinge turn and the door open into a whole new section in Luke's gospel, a section that's really going to take us all the way up into chapter 19. So look at verse 51. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So from here on out, Jesus' face, Jesus' focus is going to be set towards the holy city, towards Jerusalem. What's going to happen there? He's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried, and he's going to rise again. And so as we continue throughout the next 10 or so chapters of Luke, we're going to see Jesus not take a straight beeline for Jerusalem, but instead take on a circuitous twists and turns route through Jerusalem, He'll be in Galilee one time, he'll be in Samaria, he'll be in Jericho before he gets to Jerusalem. But even though his route is, is kind of here and there, his face will continually be set for the end game in Jerusalem. We read there, when the days drew near. The sense there is when the days were fulfilled See, Jesus is looking ahead to his ascension when he will be taken up into heaven to be with his father. But before that, he must be unjustly accused, nailed to a cross, buried in a tomb, and, and rise again in power. All of that is a plan he knows must take place. All of this are days God has, has worked out with his son. And so these days are being fulfilled in Christ. His life is not happening to him. He's happening to his life. He knows these days are going to be fulfilled. The fulfillment is taking place right here, right now. And as we've seen already in chapter 9, this plan is going to include great suffering. Twice now in Luke 9, Jesus has told his disciples that he is headed for rejection and death. And so, in light of this future laid out ahead of him, we shouldn't miss the amazing statement at the end of verse 51. Do you see it? So, the days are drawing near. What's going to happen when they come? He's going to die, he's going to suffer. But as he sees these days approaching, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knows what's coming. He's not ignorant of it, and yet he is resolved and committed to God's plan of salvation. He has said before that this plan is necessary, that it must happen. And so we see here, church, just an incredible love of Jesus for sinners like you and me. You know, we, we often will say to each other, kind of in jest or relief, that we're just glad, we're grateful we don't know the future, right? Right? Because if we did, we might not have the courage to get up tomorrow morning and face what it's going to bring. Now, we, we talk about having a superpower. Would you rather fly? Would you rather be invisible? Would you rather know the future? But we realize when we think about it, we don't want to know the future. It's a good thing. We can't see what the next day, the next month, the next year is going to hold for us. But here in Luke 9 church, Jesus knows. He knows exactly what's going to go down in Jerusalem. And yet, when we get to verse 59, we don't read, or 51, we don't read, when the days drew near, he wallowed in self-pity. Or when the days drew near, he drowned himself in distraction. Or when the days drew near, he packed his things, gathered his team, and ran the other way, Jonah style. No. No. When the days drew near for Jesus to be lifted up, he set his face to go. Every step from here on out is one step closer to the cross. Every village sermon from here on out is another sermon closer to Calvary, but Jesus' face is set. He is resolved. He will accomplish God's salvation plan. Why? Why? Because his heart is loving and submissive to his Father. And because he loves us. And what's more, his gaze, remember, is not only at the cross. His gaze is also on his being lifted up. He's looking ahead to the prize. He's looking not only at the suffering, but at the ensuing glory. Like the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 12, For the joy that was set before Jesus... He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so as the calendar pages are sort of being ripped off day by day until Jesus' death, he trusts his father, for he knows he's going to be vindicated in the end. So he sets his face for the end game in Jerusalem. He does this out of willing love for his father, He does it out of sacrificial love for you and me. J.C. Ryle, the, the English pastor in Liverpool of the late 1800s, wrote on this very verse and said, Jesus knew full well what was before him, but his heart was set on paying the price of our redemption. He was full of tender love towards sinners. It was the desire of his whole soul to procure for them salvation. So Christian, gaze at Jesus' face. Set firm in resolution to go to the cross for you and for me. And as you gaze on that firm face, allow your face to soften. As you behold his gracious love, his tender sympathy, his unfathomable compassion for you, even when you were his enemy. Friend, if you're joining us this morning, either here or online, and you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, this is precisely why Jesus came. He came to play a role in the greatest courtroom drama you've ever seen. So God the Father is the judge, and he must execute divine justice on all sinners, on you and me, because we've rejected his rule, and we've lived for ourselves. We were created to bring glory to God. We have not... We've committed cosmic treason, as R.C. Sproul put it. So everyone sits in this courtroom drama. Every one of us sits in the defendant's chair and hears the indictment read over us, rebel, sinner, idolater, adulterer. And every one of us then hears the judge pound his gavel and say, guilty as charged. The defendant must die for his crimes against the king. But God, the judge, has had mercy on sinners like you and me. And he has sent Jesus to sit in that very guilty seat for us. And, and the, the gavel now pounds down, not on the judge's desk, but on the nails driven into Jesus' feet and hands. That's what the cross is about. The cross is first and foremost judgment before it's salvation. Jesus, as he died, took all the perfect, righteous wrath of God meant for us and bore it on himself, dying willingly under his father's judgment. Also that if we would repent of our sins and trust in him, we won't have to. So friend, repent of a rebellion against God. You may think yourself a pretty good person. Each one of us has chosen to live our lives for our glory, not God's. And so each one of us deserves death. And I'm a pretty good person doesn't cut it in God's courtroom. The only words that matter in that courtroom are, I am dying in their place. And those are the words of Jesus. If you'll trust him and his death in your place and his resurrection, which gives you new life, You're going to be saved. And it's this wonderful salvation plan that Jesus is resolutely setting his face to accomplish in Jerusalem. That's Jesus' resolve. Let's see Jesus' rejection. So Jesus is, is traveling from village to village as his face is set for Jerusalem. And there in verse 52... We see that he sends messengers ahead of him to prepare for his arrival. So, these preparations might be for something like where he's going to sleep, where he's going to eat, uh, what house he's going to kind of set up shop in and and teach, right? And here, the village in Jesus' sights is a village of Samaritans. They were half Jews, they were not pure blooded Hebrews. And what's more, the the Jews worshiped God at Mount Zion, but the Samaritans said they should worship God on another mountain, Mount Gerizim. You might recall the woman at the well. You know, you say we shouldn't worship at this mountain. You worship at this mountain. There's worship wars going on between these peoples. There's incredible animosity between them. If you're a Jew, you hate Samaritans. If you're a Samaritan, you hate Jews. But Jesus, the Jew is going to the Samaritan village. And no shock, he's rejected. Look at verse 53. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Jesus' destination is Jerusalem. And so as as Jews go through the the Samaritan lands, the Samaritans reject them. They reject Jesus. Jesus. They reject his messengers. They are all unwelcome. So the RSVP is not good. And guess who doesn't like that very much? James and John, the sons of thunder. You got to love them. They're enraged by this slight against their Lord. And so there in verse 54, they say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, let's not paint James and John in a bad light right away. I mean, they're asking Jesus now, right? I, I last last week or two weeks ago, we kind of saw them kind of say to somebody that was casting out demons in Jesus's name, but wasn't following with them, stop, right? So maybe they've learned a little bit of humility. Lord, is, is this what you want us to do? Because it seems like maybe the right thing to do. Remember earlier in this chapter, Uh, These very disciples have been sent out by Jesus to proclaim the kingdom. And for those villages where they're rejected, do you remember what they're supposed to do? Kind of a weird thing for us to think about, but it was significant for them. They're they're to shake off the dust from their feet as a testimony against those rejecting them. They're they're supposed to kind of give this show of judgment. The kingdom has come near to you. You have rejected it. Beware, for you will be judged. So the disciples know that those who reject Jesus and his message will be subject to divine judgment. And and notice here, Jesus doesn't say, you're wrong about that. He doesn't say, no, 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 no judgment. They do that. They do what they do. We do what we do. Just try to be kind and friendly. No, he, he doesn't say they're wrong about their theology. He, he says they're wrong about their timing. The, the New Testament scholar, Daryl Bach, puts it this way. He says, Jesus is not rejecting the disciples' conclusion, but their timing and spirit. See, he has come at this time in his first coming, not to condemn, but to save. Remember, the, the, the disciples still think Jesus is coming to set up an earthly kingdom to force back the Romans, to help the Jews develop their national identity again. They're thinking justice, judgment, good thing. Let's get the the usurpers out of here. But Jesus has come in a surprising fashion, not to condemn, but to save. You know, your, your theology can be good, but your heart can be in the wrong place. Jesus has come to show mercy to his enemies. Judgment will come. No evil deed will go unpunished, but for now, judgment's going to come on Jesus. See, something indeed is going to come out of heaven, has come down from heaven, but it's not fire to, be, to consume. It's a son of God to be consumed for sinners. You see that? Something's going to be consumed but for now, it's not those who are rejecting Jesus. It's the rejected Jesus. Jesus has come to his enemies. He's come to make them his friends. He's come to be rejected for those who reject him. He has come to open up a way to God. One author puts it this way. He says, though the Samaritan decision is a crucial one, right? This is on them. Still, the current period is not one of instant judgment. God gives time for people to respond to the kingdom. That's grace, isn't it? So in verse 55, Jesus turns. He rebukes his disciples. Their response is immediate judgment, but their response must be tempered with patient grace. And church, I think there's just a clear application for our church family here. So as we consider those in our lives who need the gospel and yet reject it and and seemingly reject us with it, what's our first response to them? Is it a desire to have the winning argument in the end and kind of see them come back to us with their tail tucked between their legs saying, you were right, you were right. Is that our only desire? Is it a desire for them to kind of get what they deserve for any way they've mistreated us, mocked us, been arrogant towards us? Or is our response just this burning, earnest desire for them to be saved, to be rescued? To take this application and kind of broaden it even further, let's think about kind of in general how to apply this passage. Think, what is your default response to anyone who has a problem with you for whatever reason? And so what about those who are just real jerks and who undercut you and speak ill about you in your workplace, the most unlikable people in your life right now? Or what about those who disagree with you about masks or vaccines or politics? Or what about your, your spouse when, when he or she points out a flaw in your character? Or what about your children when they're frustrated with your authority? Is your first response in each of those tense exchanges one of judgment and condemnation? Uh, think about what, what would make your heart most glad? What would make your heart sing? In these circumstances. Is it if those who opposed you got their comeuppance? If fire literally or, you know, temp temp it down a little bit. But, you know, something akin to fire sort of came down and consumed them. That's really what our anger wants in the moment, isn't it? Or is it if they experience God's grace and mercy flowing through you to them? Now, I think we should be careful to say here that judgment is not a bad thing. It's not a bad word. We absolutely need God to be a God of justice. If he wasn't, he wouldn't be good at all. We would have no hope. But judgment is a bad thing for bad people like you and me. We need grace or else we're done for. And that's exactly why Jesus came. He came to proclaim mercy. Mercy. He didn't come the first time to condemn us eternally, but to be condemned for us. And so this sort of heart attitude is what he's encouraging James and John and his disciples to have. And this sort of heart attitude must characterize all of his disciples, us included, right? This heart attitude of mercy must be felt by those who spend time around us. This is part of what will set us apart from the culture as gospel people. We all know that there's so many various feuding factions in our world right now, all on a crusade to crucify and condemn anybody who would slightly disagree with their program. And that's not just people on the left, that's people on the right, too. The Church of Christ must be different. We must stand out as those who extend mercy, not instant condemnation. And I love this. It's wonderful to kind of look ahead. Remember, Luke has part one, which is the gospel of Luke. And he has part two, which is the Acts of the Apostles. And I love it when we look into Acts and we see right in verse one that it's promised that the the gospel is going to go out from Jerusalem, where? To Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then it's wonderful in Acts 8 to see the spread of the gospel after Jesus' ascension is taking up, reaching the people of the Samaritans again. In Acts chapter 8, Philip the evangelist goes and proclaims Christ in Samaria, and Luke writes in Acts 8 that there was much joy in that city. See, the Samaritans here in Luke 9 reject Jesus, but the Samaritans later in Acts 8 are going to receive him with joy. you see it? God's patience bears fruit. He's so long-suffering with us. He's patient with sinners. Shouldn't it be so with us? Church, we must be patient and gracious with those who would reject us. In doing so, we reflect the heart of our Savior. Final point, then. We've seen Jesus' resolve, his rejection, and finally we see his requirement. In verses 57-57, through 62, we get three little snapshots of conversations between Jesus and wannabe followers of him. The first snapshot is in verse 57. Someone comes along and says, He will follow Jesus regardless of where he goes. And Jesus responds in verse 58 Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man is nowhere to lay his head. Jesus doesn't really have a home in this world, does he? So if this man would follow after him, he too is going to face homelessness. He too will have to suffer. He too will be, need to be rejected. Second snapshot, verse 59. This time it's not a guy, but it's Jesus himself who's, who's making the offer, at least in this text. It's Jesus who calls and says, follow me. And it seems like this guy is game for doing that. He's like, okay, I'm in. But he has an excuse to delay it. He says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. He has this okay, but response to the call of Christ. And let's just face it. This is is pretty astonishing. Because to us, this sounds like pretty much the most legitimate excuse this guy could ever have come up with, right? Uh, We presume that his father is near death or or has died. He wants to go bury his father. Uh, And if we think that's important in this day and age, it was even more important in that day and age. But look at verse 60. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Astonishing. But if you get the idea, if you get the gist, Jesus is saying, I come first. I come first, even over your family. What's he saying there in verse 60? Uh, a good uh, possibility of what Jesus is saying is that he's saying, Let the spiritually dead bury their own physically dead. Right? Because dead people can't bury dead people. So it seems like he's saying, let those people who aren't interested in me, who are not on mission with me, who are separated from me, let them take care to bury their dead. I have the more pressing call. Those who would follow me must leave all for me. And the last snapshot is there in verse 61. Someone says, I will follow you, Lord, but... Here's another excuse for not following Jesus right away. But let me first say farewell to those in my home. Okay, legitimate again. Okay, sure, why not? Fine thing to ask. But Jesus again declines. He uses this statement to make his own point. You cannot prioritize anything above me if you decide to follow me. I require everything. Everything. Jesus is our Lord, our, our master, our king. It's interesting that back in the book of, of 1 Kings in chapter 19, uh, the prophet Elijah, in a, in a passage a lot like this one, comes along Elisha, uh, and he says, he calls Elisha to, to Elisha to follow him. And in 1 Kings 19, Elisha says, sure, but let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah says, sure, go do it, Right? you go do that. What am I to you? You just do that, and then you come back, we'll go off together. Here, Jesus shows that he has a call greater than the call of the greatest Old Testament prophet, Elijah, one of the greatest. He says in verse 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The point is clear. When you plow a furrow in a field, I think the Groves would know something about this. When you plow a furrow in a field, you need to keep your eyes fixed ahead so your plowing is straight, or else you're just going to get the whole field off, right? You can't keep looking back. So it is with Christ. You must fix your eyes on where where you're plowing towards and keep your eyes there, because if you look back, if you regret your decision, You're going to go off track. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You need to be all in with Christ. Commitment to Jesus is total. Being a follower of his requires everything. Those who would pursue him will need to let go of calling this world home. Because Jesus has nowhere to lay his head. And they're, to quote one commentator, they're to know that one's home is with Christ. Those who seek Jesus must seek him even above their loved ones. So church, we began by thinking about some funny excuses for missed homework. But excuses when it comes to following Jesus are no laughing matter. So consider what might be your excuse for putting off following Christ. What might be your but only? Perhaps you might respond to Jesus' call and say, I will follow, but my career will come first. Or I will follow, but only if I get my dream single family home. Or I will follow, but only if my needs will be met. Or I will follow, but only if others make an effort too. I can't do this alone. Or, I will follow, but only if my kids will still like me when I make them go to church. Or, I will follow, but only if I can keep my current standard of living. Or, I will follow, but only if God gives me my ideal family. Jesus, of course, is not saying families or homes are bad things. They're good gifts from him. He's making some... Astonishing, provocative points that show us that if we put anything before Him in our lives, we aren't truly following after Him. Jesus must be your ultimate priority. Following Him, loving Him, knowing Him must grip you more firmly than anything else. And, and Christian, I I was tempted to kind of find some way to kind of soften Jesus' words. And perhaps there is some hyperbole going on here. But Luke is writing this on purpose because Jesus is saying this on purpose to strike us. I think, I think it would be good to feel a little unsettled by Jesus' words here. I think that's his point. We must not drain Jesus' words of their power. Coming to Christ is of grace. is all of grace. Yes, that's why Jesus has Come. He's come to bear our curse, set us free. There's nothing we need to do. He will save us. But He's not come to merely save us and then leave us on our own. He's come to own us. He's come to bring us to Himself in His embrace, to know us in a covenant of love forever. He's come to be our King, not just our Savior. And in that fatherly care and kingly authority, we find in him, we find complete joy and freedom. The question is, are you willing to lay down the other things you might worship more than Christ so you can hold firmly on to him? Are you willing to say, even in in our culture, which prizes family, praise God, are we willing to say, I will love my family best when I love them second best? Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, Discipleship is not an offer man makes to Christ. I think he points something out that's helpful there, because we can often think of discipleship that way, right? When we think about following Jesus, we can think about it in terms of, okay, so this is Jesus, I'm a Christian now, Um, so how am I going to, like, kind of do the Christian thing? Um, What's the time commitment, Jesus? What, what grade do I need to get to pass? What's in it for me? Jesus is not out for, as Bonhoeffer called it, cheap grace without discipleship. He's not out for those who are just interested. He's out for those who will give him their lives. So Christian, are you all in with Jesus? Does he get to call the shots in your life? As I thought about it, I think... It's safe to say that for many of us, frustrations in our life, hang-ups in our life are due to the fact that we're often fighting our king for control of our life. So are you willing to surrender that control to him? Church, we will all fail at this at certain points. By God's grace, as we grow in our Christian walk, as we are sanctified, we will fail less and less, but we will fail. We will follow Jesus imperfectly. We will see our flesh long for sin. We will find our hearts condemning others before showing them mercy. But in those times, we must not look back. We must look forward and repent, return again to the king. Because Jesus is is ready to forgive. His forgiveness has no, no limit. And he's our all. In him we find more treasure, more value, more meaning, more happiness, more joy than anything we would find in pursuing our own path and grasping for our own glory. For Jesus is our greatest treasure. He's the the wellspring of our souls. When he calls, we must follow. For he is what our hearts truly long for. Let's pray. Lord, these are strong words here in Luke 9. You call us to put you first in our lives, above our comfort, above our job, above our family, above our our career plans, our strategic plans, our retirement plans. So we pray that you would grip us by your spirit and cause us to lean into this call and not back away from it. Forgive us for being so comfortable in our lives that we don't often think about what the cross is that you would call us to pick up and follow after you. Lord, this is this is something you are calling us to because you want us to be happy. You want us to find the joy that you've created us to enjoy. So help us to to let go of the things that will sap us of joy, to cling to you, the one who invented joy. You're all we need. You've given yourself for us. We give ourselves to you. Amen.